you're glad to be in the house of the Lord and happy to be here. Again, if you're watching online, welcome. Um, take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. It's interesting, um, <clears throat> I've gotten a numerous responses to this first sermon uh, in this series on God and country. And it's always interesting when I preach what people, what I think I say and what people hear. Uh, and sometimes it's pretty similar, sometimes it's fill in the gaps, uh, sometimes it's a, it's a little different. But I pray that the Spirit of God would open our hearts and minds to hear uh, this morning the Word of God. I'm trying to base everything I say solidly in God's Word because that's who we are. We're people who believe fully in the Word of God and in the, the, the Spirit of God, enlivening truth to us, showing it to us. I don't know about you, but I struggle at times with certain scripture passages, just to be honest. I mean, I've given my life to the Word of God and to church, and I look at passages like Romans 13, 1 and 2 that talks about God is the one who sets leaders in place. And no authority, no authority is given authority apart from what God has established. And historically, I look back and I'm like, wow, that is tough. To, that is a tough one. Um, even when the Bible's written, you've got these Roman emperors that are ruling, and a majority of them weren't nice guys. Uh, you know, they, they were brutal, and uh, it was a tough time. And you look back and say, well, God puts all authorities in place, but isn't it fascinating that that was the moment that Jesus was born? I mean, if Rome had not been ruling, and the Pax Romana, and the way uh, the Roman, as horrible as we look at the government at the time and we look at it, Jesus cho God chose Jesus to be born at that moment because the word would go forth in ways it couldn't at any other time in history, before or after. So we, at some point, we have a narrow view of what is taking place historically and the sovereignty of God and all that's going on, uh, good and bad and and in just various ways. Uh, I'm stuck here. Yeah, Caroline knows I'm stuck here. Can you help me? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. What's that? <laughs> That's not the, I've never seen this screen before. So... All right, Mary Jo, you just switch the slides as I go. We run like a well-oiled machine here. <laughs> you know, as much as we do beforehand and everything's running great, boom, it just something changes. Anyway, uh, last week I talked about um, that it is God and country in that order. That we need to remember that our first allegiance goes where? It goes to God. It goes to God that we need to resist allowing national pride to overwhelm Christian wisdom. That we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize that God's word is primary in our lives. There is only one word of God. And as much as I respect the Constitution of the United States, it is not the word of God. There is only one word of God. There is the word of God. Um, we need to resolve to pray for our leaders. Um, there are more and more increase. You know, I talked about last week how this 
lack of what I saw as prayer coming into our election. I just hear it more and more, though, this week, even now, coming more. People praying uh, for not only our leaders, but our, but our future. And we need to respect those who are different than you. We are the body of Christ. And in this body alone, there's going to be different people who vote in different ways. Um, and so we need to respect those who are different than us. Because there will be differences. Uh, the name-calling, the ugliness, the division that occurs uh, in political realms to me is just quite frankly ungodly. Uh, instead, we need to respect those who are different than us. Can I say something in all love? Um, you nor I have the corner on the market of truth. Uh, as much as we think we do, we don't. Um, I mean, no one wants to go around deceived, right? But that's the terrible thing about deception. We don't know it. Uh, and we are wrong in some areas. I, I'm always praying, God, show me where I'm wrong. God, show me where your mi my mind doesn't agree with your mind, and please help me change my mind. Continue to reveal to me your truth. And in such, listen to other people around and to respect those who are different than us. Today, I want to talk about um, in whom do we trust? In what do we trust? The national motto for our country is, in God we trust. Now, see, I was born, I hate to even say this, I was born in 1958. You're like, oh, he doesn't look that old. But yeah, I'm, I'm thank you, but, but I am that old. And um, so I think, you know, I, the, the motto, in God we trust, must have been around for the whole history of our country. It must have been the national motto from day one, and we need to get back to the roots of our country in God we trust. Actually, the phrase, in God we trust, was not the national motto of our country until 1954. And in 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower established in God we trust as the national motto. Up until that point, the unofficial motto was e pluribus unum, out of many, one, and then in 1954, President Eisenhower established, um, first of all, the Pledge of Allegiance in 54. One nation under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. And I, I, see, I thought it was always there. But it was added in 54 as a result of a direct um, fight against what was seen as godless communism. Uh, there was a direct... As you know, the Cold War started after World War II, and there was the rise of communism, which took a direct stance against God. And so it was a fight against that in the 50s. A lot of God language got added to things officially. So Eisenhower said this, from this day forward, millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, he's talking about the Pledge of Allegiance under God, every village and rural school, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resources in peace or in war. I, I love this statement. I think it's a, a great statement. The problem is it doesn't happen to be true uh, in the sense of 
we say it, but do we mean it? So in 56, 1956, uh, In God We Trust was firmly established as the national motto. Since 1954 and 1956, these two phrases, one nation under God and in God we trust, thank you, Caroline, um, have been challenged in the courts over and over again as a result of not establishing a religious clause. And so they've, it's been challenged in the courts. So in 1970, the, court, the courts, this is the Ninth um, Circuit Court of Appeals, Aaron Alvarez of the United States over this uh, In God We Trust and One Nation Under God said this, it is quite obvious that the national motto and the slogan on coinage and currency in God we trust, listen to this, has nothing whatsoever to do with the establishment of religion. Its use is a patriotic or ceremonial character and bears no true resemblance to a governmental sponsorship of a religious exercise. I don't know, whenever I read legal stuff, I usually refer to Dave Malik because he can help me interpret it. But basically he's saying the word God means nothing. And they reaffirmed this in um, uh, 2004 where they cited this very ruling in Elk Grove, Uni in Elk Grove United School District versus Newdown 2004 said this, these acts of what they called ceremonial deism are protected from establishment clause scrutiny chiefly because they have lost through rote repetition any significant religious content. So what the court is saying is it's okay to say in God we trust because it really means, means nothing. It's ceremonial. It's just a word. It's just a word in God we trust. Now see, for me... That doesn't ring because when I say God, I mean God, right? And so for many of us, when we say in God we trust, we believe, yes, this is what our nation is. When we say one nation under God, we believe we are a nation under God. But to those outside the church, God is, it's just a ceremonial word. How do we, how do we, rectify this and what are the ramifications for living in a culture that sees God as a ceremonial word ceremonial deism is it really impacting are we talking over each other when we even use religious terms and how do we get to a place where we really make a difference in the world around us so what I'd like to look at today and I want to look at Psalm 33 here it says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. The psalm is, let me say this too about this psalm. There's going to be language in this psalm that refers directly to the nation of Israel. And I've said this over and over again. Um, I, I don't believe the United States is the nation of Israel. Um, I, you can't correlate the two. Um, the nation of Israel was seen as an, a, a nation who, 
who were called out by God in the sense of they were established firmly for him, for his glory, for his purposes. And they were the called out people of God. If anything, the church is closer to, I would see, synonymous to the nation of Israel in Old Testament language, though even that has some difficulties uh, theologically. But all of that to say, look, God is the one who is sovereign. He's the one sovereign over the nations, and we need to really dig into that as the people of God. We need to establish ourselves in that because we've got a problem with the prevailing culture that's around us. Um, The prevailing culture does not echo what you and I are speaking. And I don't know about you, but I, I get... I get worked up a little bit. Again, I'm getting older, but uh, I get worked up a little bit when I start watching news. <clears throat> you know, see, I'm, I, again, I'm really old. So I remember when CNN used to pretend to not be liberal. Some of you are like, what? Well, there was a day when CNN came out and everybody knew it was liberal, but they pretended not to. They pretended to be unbiased. Then Brother Rush Limbaugh came along, and he, like, owned the airwaves as a conservative. Then Fox News comes along, and they don't pretend to be not conservative. So they take over the conservative, and CNN sees, wow, look at all the people watching them when they don't pretend to be unbiased. They're directly conservative. We might as well just be liberal and just show everybody. So now nobody can say anything good about anybody. You know what I mean? I I don't care. You could watch the exact same news report about fires in California, and you're going to get a totally different perspective on why it's caused, what happened to it, how do we rescue people, and it is infuriating to me. Okay, it's just me. Sorry, it's my own weakness to, to, to see how biased tragedies become. We're going to have, maybe, a tropical storm hit us next week. Somebody's going to blame somebody for us having a tropical storm. Somebody's going to, somebody did something to someone that caused this tropical storm. And it's going to affect our election. As a result, vote for so-and-so, or vote for so-and-so. The prevailing culture is getting more and more divided, more and more extreme. And people of God, I want to say to you, our call is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Our call is, it, it is easy if you're like me. It would be my tendency to get caught up honestly in one side or the other and defend one side against the other. And to say this side is godly, this side is ungodly. To say this side is this, this side is that. Here's the defense. I think I'm smart enough to kind of weave my way through some critical issues. I'm totally deceived on this, but I think I am. And so if we're not careful, we get caught up in the prevailing culture rather than being a people set apart as a holy people, a priesthood, to declare what? The glory of our God. Here's what Psalm 33 says. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to go on, but I think that phrase can be universal. Any nation, I think there's a blessing that comes on a people whose God is the Lord. Uh, the problem is we don't live in a nation whose God is the Lord. We live in a nation whose God is a God of ceremonial deism, mostly. That's why we need revival so bad in our land. And then he goes on, the people he chose for his inheritance. Now, again, I think he's referring to the nation of Israel um, at this point. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Don't you love all those all phrases? He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. He sees, he watches over all of us. He goes on and says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Now, here's what I think the psalmist, and I'm putting a, a, a template a little bit over this, but here's what I believe the psalmist is. He's giving us warnings about the prevailing culture, whether it be then or now. And here are some warnings about culture that I think we all need to be made aware of. One is that culture will give us a false sense of strength. It'll give us a false sense of strength. We think we're strong. Psalm 32 says, uh, 33, again, this passage, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite of its great strength, it cannot save. He's saying, listen, there's this false sense of strength that comes by military might. By having a strong king makes people think that they are themselves strong. Now, just this past week, we, um, it was not celebrated, it, we remembered 9-11. You know, up until 9-11, for those of you who weren't around prior to that, um, I, we would have said we are invincible on our own shores. We would have said there's no, we, we can protect ourselves. The strength of our army, it's the greatest in the world, and no one's going to attack us on our own soil. Now, see, none of us were, not many, were still alive in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was attacked. But we would say, yeah, but that was Hawaii. That was way out there, even then. But on, in the 48, we, we're pretty much impenetrable until planes hit the Pentagon, which is seen as the center of military might. We have this false sense of strength. And it's part of the culture that instills in us. And, and as a result, we all we feel pretty comfortable. And God is saying, look, that is not the case. It is a false sense. And prevailing culture gives us that. And as a result, it gives us a false sense of security. We think we're secure. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. And you're like, yeah, well, it's because I got a tank now. I don't need no horse. You know, back then, horses were seen as the sign of strength and security. 
And so we think we are secure. We think we're financially secure. We think we're military might secure. We, we believe all of these things. And I think God is saying to us in the psalmist way, listen, don't put your hope in a king whose army is big or in horses who give you this false sense of security. Because it then leads us to this feeling that we are in control. We believe in this false sense of sovereignty. Verses 13 through 15. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches all who live on earth. He forms the hearts of all who, consi and who considers everything they do. Who, who is in heaven? Who's looking down? Heaven is the place where everything is ruled from. In other words, God is king. God is sovereign. God sees. God rules. Not us. But we have this sense of power that comes from the strength and security we think we have and makes us sovereign. It's it's part of the American ideal, too, that we are strong. We are sovereign. I can rule myself. I am in control of everything that takes place around me. Now, there's so many ramifications of this that, that are both deadly and disastrous and, uh, and wounding. So let's say you say you are sovereign and you are in control. Well, what, thing, what happens when things get out of control? Who's to blame? Well, ultimately, if I'm in control and things get out of control, then I'm to blame. Oh, well, that can't be the case. I'm so sovereign that I can't even blame myself, so i got to blame somebody else for me being out of control, right? So now my sovereignty is being impinged upon because I'm out of control and it's your fault. Now, it sounds wacko, but that's where we've gotten to. That nobody can take, for, we all want to think we're in control, but when things get out of control, because I can't be wrong, somebody else has to be. God is the one. Who, we, we need to relinquish our control to him. You know what? <clears throat> I, I know you know this. We're all mostly on the same page, but I'm just reminding you of this. That when you come to Jesus Christ, you receive him as Lord. Well, there's some meaning to that word. That means he's in control. He's the one. He is the one who is sovereign. It's in our Christian language, the way we speak. If I'm in control, then I'm the Lord of my life. I'm ruling. I'm reigning. And I think you can see the problem. Well, hopefully you can see the problem with that. <clears throat> this year was supposed to be the Olympics. Um, I was wandering through. I think this is kind of funny. I was wandering through, I was, looking for, um, I was looking for a tool in one of our closets here at church. Now, somehow, I, I don't know, this is like my house. Whenever I go to look for a specific tool, I can never find it. Even though I know I placed it somewhere, but I blame somebody else because it's not where I placed it anymore. Again, going back to the sovereignty issue, and it frustrates the heck out of me that I'm looking through my garage for some tool I know I own, but it's not there. So I was trying to find something here at church to, to, to do something 
doesn't matter. So I'm looking through all the closets for this particular tool. And I came across a calendar uh, in one of our closets, and it said this, the American spirit is unbreakable. And I thought, how did this get in our church? <laughs> I honestly, I threw it away, the calendar. Uh, but it was leading for up to the Olympics, and I'm like, that's, the, that's what we think. That's what we believe. We believe the American spirit is unbreakable because we are secure, we're strong, we're sovereign. The book of Proverbs says, all a man's ways seem right in his own eyes. There is a way that seems right to a man. Now, you can probably pick up on this a little bit, but this, the, the author of Proverbs is saying, that ain't true. I mean, that's his, everything seems right in his own eyes. Everybody thinks he's doing the right thing, but that, that's what culture is always pushing upon us. And I think for all the greatness of America, it's one of the, the, the deadly things that if we're not careful, that we'll actually start to believe. And these truths that, they're not truths, these lies really, they creep into the church just as much as they do our culture. And if we're not careful, we actually believe we are invincible. We're strong. We're secure. We're sovereign. Listen, church, we need to get back to a place where we say, here's what we are. We're not the culture. We're the persevering church. We are the people of God. We are the set-apart ones. Going on in Psalm 23, it says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Over and over again, the psalmist is saying, our hope is where? It's in the Lord. It's not in the army, our economics, our job, our education. It's not in all of those things. Our hope, our hope as the church, the called out ones, is in him. In um, a Bible story from uh, 1 Kings chapter 21 or 22, um, Jehoshaphat is a good king. You know, there are a lot of bad kings, and then there are good kings. Jehoshaphat was the son of Asa, and he did a lot of really good things. Remember, the nation uh, is divided in two. There's the ten tribes to the north, over which a number of bad kings rule. And then in the south, there's two tribes left that the descendants of David rule. And in the south, Jehoshaphat is king, and he does, he's doing a, he does a really good job, except he does some stupid things, uh, which we all are prone to do. So he looks to the north, and he says, I need to make an alliance with the north. And so I'm going to give my daughter in marriage to the king of the north, and that way we'll be allied. We'll be, we'll be together. I mean, we're all brothers, you know, we're all from the same place. So, well, it just so happens that the king of the 
northern tribe of Israel, is this guy named Ahab, married to Jezebel. Um, so he allies himself with Ahab. So one day he says, I'm going to go visit my in-laws. Uh, I'm going to go to the north and go, go visit them and see them. And so he goes up. He and Ahab are partying. Ahab says, hey, look, this is my version. You can read it for yourself. It's a little, it's a little less dramatic. But he says, hey, let's go out to war. The two of us together. We're two kings. Let's go out and, 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 and face down some enemies and have a battle. And these people are bugging me over here, so let's go take out them. Jehoshaphat is, um, he's keen enough to say, maybe we should seek after God. Do you have any prophets of God here? Ahab's got like, I got hundreds of prophets. I got hundreds. Let me just get them and we'll bring them in at the party and they'll tell us what to do. So they bring in all these prophets. They're just like, oh, great kings, go out to war. You're going to do great. You're going to do great. And uh, Jehoshaphat still has enough sense left to say, hey, do you have a prophet of God around here? <laughs> and again, read it for yourself. It's, kind of, it's pretty close. I'm doing pretty good, actually. He says, do you have a prophet of God around here? And Ahab goes, oh, there's this one dude, but he never tells me anything good. He always speaks badly of him, of me. And so Joseph said, well, let's bring him in and see what he says. So they go and get this prophet named Micaiah. Micaiah, on his way in, the hundreds of prophets are saying, hey, we already prophesied. Just agree with us. The battle's good. And he, and he says, I can only do what God tells me, which is a good phrase. But then he gets in there, and the king says, prophesy. And Micaiah, in kind of a sarcastic version realm says, yeah, just go out, do what you want to do. Just go do it. If you're going to do it anyway, just go on. Don't waste my time. And Ahab says to him, have I not told you to tell me the truth? And in one of those you can't handle the truth moments, <laughs> Micaiah says to him, hey, if you go out into battle, you're not coming back. And you turning to Joseph, if you, if you all go out into battle, you're going to be running away for your life. And Ahab turns to Joseph, didn't I tell you? The guy never tells me anything good. I told you this was going to happen. And um, Makai gets in all sorts of trouble for telling the truth. I mean, he gets slapped around, gets put in prison. And now he's getting worked up. And he says, if you come back alive, I'm not a prophet to Ahab. And sure enough, they go on battle. Now, Ahab is not totally stupid, but he is. Um, and so he goes out in battle and he says to one of his lesser guys, hey, um, why don't you wear my robe? Well, we go out in this. Why don't you wear my stuff? You ride in my, you ride in my chariot. You take, you take my place. I'll just go into battle looking like one of the guys today. As the story goes, that some dude from the other enemy just launches an arrow and it kills Ahab. Not even aiming for him, just <laughs> kind of thing. Now, what, I, in Jehoshaphat, he lives, but he has to run away. God spares him. I mean, I, I love this Bible story. I don't know if you do or not. But 
To me, it speaks of the truth of God. The truth of God being going against the culture. And, and here's some things I think the psalmist is saying to us, the story from Kings tells us as well. And the first thing has to do with truth and unity. Truth and unity. You know, it's, I'm going to say some phrases here. Um, it's better to be divided by truth than united in a lie. It's better to be divided by truth than united in a lie. You know, one of Hitler's big phrases, I know I quoted Hitler last week, sorry, but he stole this phrase, as he was apt to do, but he, one of his phrases was, no one will ever ask the victor if he told the truth. He's like, I can make up a lie. I'll make one so big, no one's, but no one will know because I want people to be united. It was the whole Jewish equation. He brought people against Judy, the Jews of his time because he needed Germany to unite against something. So he, he made up an enemy who had been around for, you know, that anti-Semitism had been around for over 100 years, well, even longer than that. But in Germany, it had really given rise. He thought, I'm just going to play off of this. But once I win, no one's going to ask me if I told the truth. We need the truth of God, and we need to stand on the truth. Now, sometimes when we stand on the truth, it is going to, it's going to hurt. It's not only going to hurt, it's going to divide. Because not everybody wants to hear the truth. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. That doesn't mean you speak truth ugly, right? You just speak truth. You may or may not know this phrase, veritas Christo et ecclesia. It means um, truth for Christ and the church. When Harvard founded in the 1600s, this was the motto of Harvard. Truth for Christ and the church. And their first emblem or logo had this in three parts around a crest with three books with the bottom book turned upside down, which symbolized for Harvard at the time that not all truth could be found in academic studies. That there was some truth that was hidden. There's some truth that only God... It's truth for Christ and the church. Now, as you can imagine, over the 100 years, 200, 300 years now, that has kind of gone away. Now, Harvard's emblem is just veritas, which means truth. And the book that was turned over is now turned back over, which symbolizes truth can be discovered through academic means. You see, there's an idea in our world that humanity is progressing forward. And as we do, we can grow. We can not only uncover truth, we can create truth. And God's word is saying truth is truth. And truth is established by God. There is a absolute truth. And it is what God says. When Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate says to him, why, why have you come? It's one of the great answers of all time, which we need to stand, listen to again. He, he says, I have come to testify to the truth. I've come to testify to the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is a truth that can only be found in God and through 
through Jesus. And because of that, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to understand that speaking the truth doesn't mean everybody will be on board. Another point about truth is it's better to speak truth that hurts and eventually heals than a lie that feels good at the moment but eventually destroys. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we want to speak and we just want people to like us so much that rather than actually speaking the truth, we'll speak a lie that feels better for the moment. Scripture says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. You, I think you get the point, right? That many times, many times, people will speak to us a lie in order to make us feel better for the moment, but it's eventually going to destroy later rather than something that hurts in the moment, but will eventually heal. Look, I am so tempted, I am so tempted to wade into the political arena and to talk about this. But what we need is the spirit of truth enveloping us right now. We need to walk out the truth in love in all corners um, around us. Because let me tell you, people, we are constantly being inundated with lies everywhere. They're all around us. You know, the, the enemy is the father of what? Lies. He's not going to. Okay, I'm going to move on. Truth and love. Truth and love. <clears throat> Do you know, it's, I'm going to say this phrase. You can write some of these down if you want, but you don't have to. But it's better to be disliked for telling the truth than to be loved for telling lies. It's better to be disliked for telling the truth. And again, here's where many of us get caught up in things. We think we have to do it in such a way that it's just plain ugly. But we don't. Paul says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Obviously, he's saying to the Galatians, some of you are like speaking really bad about me and talking to me about I'm the enemy when what I'm doing is trying to proclaim truth to you. Paul goes on in Ephesians and says, instead, speaking the truth in what? In love. You know, our problem is not the truth. Many times it's the way we speak it. It's the tone of voice. It's the tone of voice. I was watching a, a comedy special Again, I don't recommend things, but I was watching a comedy special of Jerry Seinfeld just recently, and I'd seen him in concert, so to speak, a year or two ago. And he was saying that when he got married, he wasn't even aware until he got married that he had a tone of voice. <laughs> and that he walked in one day and said to his wife, hey, what's for dinner? And she said, I don't like your tone of voice. 
you know, in that Seinfeld kind of way. We can say a lot of things, but it's tone that communicates much. I'm not talking about being ugly just for the sake of ugly. I'm saying be, speak the truth in love because the truth itself will divide. But we need to speak the truth in love. Some of us have such a need to be loved that we're willing to, at times, compromise the truth in order to be loved. We've got this overwhelming sense of being accepted. And God is saying to us, look, speak, speak the truth, but do it in love. And sometimes as a result, you'll be alone. Is it better to be alone with the truth or in a large group who's speaking lies? Obviously, I think there's a right answer here. I think it's to be stand in the truth. To stand in the truth. But we, again, Noah was not exactly in the majority. You know, I heard a preacher say one time, Noah went into the boat a minority. He came out a majority. So, (laughs) I thought that was funny, but. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. What does that mean? They'd rather hear lie that kind of makes them feel good than to stand for the truth. Again, I I think in our country, as the days progress, we are going to get more and more isolated in the truth. And again, our truth is that God reigns that Jesus came to save, and that people can be restored into a relationship with God. Those are the truths we have to stand. And as a result, every person of every background, nation, tribe, tongue, who believes in Jesus is now a part of the body of Christ. And every person you lock eyes with when you leave this place, I don't care what color, where they were born, what race, where, uh, how much money they have, every single person you see out there is someone that Jesus died for. We need to stand on that truth. Finally, uh, truth and success. Again, as I've been framing these, it's, it's better to, I think it's better to temporarily fail standing on the truth Because we will ultimately succeed. It may not even be in this life. But it's to look like a failure for the moment. Did the cross not look like a failure? But ultimately succeed? Then it is to stand on a lie for the moment. Looking like you've won and then ultimately fail. We need to stand on the truth. And by the way, I, I stole that whole phrase from Woodrow Wilson who said, I would rather temporarily fail with a cause that will ultimately succeed than to temporarily succeed with a cause that will ultimately fail. We have the ultimate truth in God. 
If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Here's my encouragement to us today. In whom do we trust? In whom do we trust? That's why I said it in blank we trust. Because in our society and in our culture, though God is put in that phrase, I do not think that word means what you think it means kind of thing. We believe in a God who rules and reigns. A God who from heaven sees all. A God who who broke through heaven and lived on this earth and died for us so that we could be in an eternal relationship with him. One day, I don't know when, I'm no prophet, but one day America's going to pass away. I want to encourage you, as much as, and as patriotic as we are loving this nation, Anything that will ultimately pass away is not ultimate truth. The reality is the kingdom of God. The reality, believe it or not, the reality, eternal reality, is the church of Jesus Christ. Though we have impact in our culture, in our society, in the places around us, I want to encourage us to stand on God's truth. To stand for him at all times. I'm going to pray for us. And then, as we like to do at times, and I think it's very appropriate today, is for us to say the Apostles' Creed. Here's what we believe. Here's the truth that we stand upon. And then we're going to sing it and celebrate it because this is, this is who we are. Stand up with me if you would. Lord, we thank you today for your grace and mercy that's been extended toward us. Lord, I thank you for this people in this place. I pray that thanking you that you've given us your word that is truth, that Jesus Christ, you came to testify to the truth, and that you've given us the spirit of God who is the spirit of truth, and that we will walk in truth truth. Lord, may your church be your church. May the people of God rise up and be the people of God. May we, Lord, through all the noise that's around us, that surrounds us, may we, may we stand upon your word and your truth. Thank you, Lord. Say this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's celebrate those truths together. 